everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Neil and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Tonight, we have with us two amazing writers. One is my co-host, Steve Flink, and the other is Chris Clary, who, after covering tennis mostly for the New York Times for over three decades, has just released his first book called The Master, The Long Run and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer. Super excited to have Chris join Steve and I for this discussion. So with that, please welcome to the pod, Chris Clary. Chris, thank you so much um, for talking your tennis journey and more specifically talking about your book on Roger. Thanks for joining us. Hey, this is a great pleasure. Good company. I'm looking forward to this. So first, tell us where you're at. I know I, I believe you're, you're in Paris as we speak right now. Is this still kind of the book tour time of year for you? Well, actually, you know, my, my life has been split in a lot of ways between, um, you know, Paris and the U.S. for a long time. My wife is French. She's from here. And I was the International Herald Tribune sports columnist for many, many years. And that the International Herald Tribune was based in Paris. And basically, it's the International New York Times. So I really worked in and out of here for, for three decades. I lived in Spain for a long time, too. But so we're back here. My wife's taking some classes. Um, I wanted to come back over for the ATP finals in Turin when they made the move from London to Turin. So I was just there and did a lot of book stuff in Italy, which was fun. The book just came out in Italian. Il Maestro, which is great. You know, I sort of figured that was yeah. kind of fun. <laughs> and uh, there was a fair bit of interest in Italy, but I was struck by how many uh, tennis books there are in Italy. I was at the bookstores there and I was amazed by how much interest there was in the sport right now and how many how crowded the bookshelves were with tennis books. Because as Steve and I know, there aren't that many in our country really that come out on a regular basis. So over there, there were a bunch of Federer books and a bunch of uh, books about I think Ricardo Piatti seems to have cornered the market on all the books, the coach over there. So it was interesting. But I've been doing a lot of book stuff for the last few months, and now I'm here, and I'm finishing up the finishing up the year before coming back for the Australian Open. Nice. This is uh, I'm fascinated, and we're going to get into all this because I mean you've covered tennis for so long, but this was your first experience writing a book, and I and I'll ask Steve to to piggyback a little bit because of Steve's uh, prior experiences with his book writing. I mean, for you, how long did this project take from I'd say first word on paper to actually seeing it in final book form? You know, full disclosure, quickly, I, I did write three Davis Cup books back in the day, back in the 90s, that I took very seriously, but nobody else did. But they were for me, a, they were for me a big deal. They were kind of the yearbook of the year. I interviewed everybody and came out in a hardback form. It was with Rizzoli, and I think it was with the ITF at that point, actually. So okay. there actually, actually are books that I wrote them. But to be honest, compared to this project, it was kind of like um, sort of jotting down a few notes versus trying to write something much more in depth. It was a, it's nothing really to compare it to. So this book, my, in my eyes, was really my first book, like you say, first real major book. And it was just a uh, much harder than I imagined, to be honest with you. And it, the process of, of doing it, you know, really, in theory, began 20 years ago when I first saw Roger Federer play, really, or 20, you know, 22 years ago, 1999 at the French Open. I was pretty instantly fascinated by him. And I've sort of been, the book dates back to that period in terms of the interviews and the research that was done but the actual process of doing it i basically decided after 2019 it just seemed to me that roger's career the main body of work was finished by then you could tell the interest was really huge in, in him around the world i could sense that from all my traveling and i really felt like he's going to do his autobiography at some point i could never be part of that um, it felt to me like this was a really good time to look at his career and give people a sense of what i had seen from being kind of in a ringside seat all these years from watching Roger as a, as a pro anyway, really develop in the beginning. And then having been around an awful lot, uh, Novak Djokovic and uh, Rafael Nadal as well. So I kind of saw it as a book that would 
be about Roger and he would be the thread, but there'd be a lot of uh, big three in the book and really explore the rivalries. And I just felt like I, I would really regret it if I didn't do it. So that was, that was kind of the genesis. And actually the actual process was about six months of research dedicated exclusively to the book. When my day job wasn't going on, it was in my, in my free time. And then I took a, a five month book leave from the New York times, which was great of them to do. And I was, you know, full in, I think I took a couple of days off in five months and just really did it. So it was a, what a hard thing, but what a, what a rewarding thing. And, and I'm really glad to have kind of exercised myself, <laughs> if you will, of the book and I've, I've managed to get it done, which is great. Yeah. I want to lead and Steve's going to follow, follow me with this, but yeah, you said you had, you know, a little bit previous experience in writing a book, but this was really your first major, major project all in on Roger. Was there something that you learned during this process that was something unique or more challenging as opposed to, you know, just writing columns, which you've done for so long and you're so good at right. uh, for the New York Times? Well, thank you for that. I mean, it's a different, different ball game. It really is. Um, and I think I was surprised by how different a ball game it was, to be honest. I think my, my takeaway, and if I ever do another one, um, which I would hope to do at some point, is that structure is king, really. Um, and a newspaper article, obviously, it's important. Your structure is important in anything you do in writing. But you can kind of get in and get out. And your body can be whatever comes up during the course of your day and your research, and it, you're going to be okay. Book, long form, if your structure is not good, it's going to fall over. You're going to lose your momentum. You're going to lose the rhythm, at least in my experience in this time. So I really, uh, I think you cannot really overdo the structural planning, if you will, the architectural drawings of the book. And then I think if you do a good job of that, um, a really good job of that, then I think things are a lot more flowing and natural. I had to make some corrections in, along the way, and but I really have respect for those who uh, can put together a, a finely tuned architectural process on the book. And, and I, I think it's a, it's not as I thought in a way when I started to do it, that it would be a series of magazine articles, if you will, uh, to write a book. I think it can be that, but I think, I think a book that has that sort of integrity and structure, it isn't that it's got a unity and a thread all the way through. And to carry that along was, was a real challenge for me from my background, for sure. And Steve, I'll ask you, I mean, you, you've written a number of books. You also written thousands of, of articles. Um, I guess maybe what are some of the things that when you first started writing your first book kind of struck you as well, this is something unique. Uh, and maybe has that changed over, over the course of your career in writing your several books? Well, it was interesting to hear Chris describe the process as, as he saw it. And I found that very, very interesting because when I did my first couple of books on the greatest matches of the 20th century and then the greatest matches of all time, I, that I was able to, I felt I was able to successfully turn it into it. That was more like magazine pieces, Chris, th threading them together. And, and, and because in the case of the greatest matches, somebody could actually start in that book and go to little Mo Connolly and then go back to Tilden and then, then jump forward mm. to Monica. And it wouldn't have mattered. But I found that when I did the Pete Sampras book, it was more, I had this, more of a philosophy along the lines of Chris that this has got a real this this cannot be uh, th this structure has to be very different and yeah. I, I you know and I, I hope I succeed in the end I felt in that case I tried to just describe the breadth the breadth and scope of his career from beginning to end with lots of quotes mixed in from other players and coaches but then to have a section in the back there was so much material that these I'd gotten from the interviews 
that I wanted to use that in the end and give the reader maybe a little dessert after the main course. So I, I, I did that chapter on imagining Sampras playing against Djokovic, Nadal and Federer, and I did his legacy. And then I did sort of his life today. So I, I, but where I'm totally in accord with you, Chris, is that the challenge is, is just so much more substantial than doing the shorter pieces and the structure in, is indeed critical. And both what, what you both referred to is the subject matter of the book makes it what it is, right? Steve, the first two books that you referred to, you could be like short snippets, short stories. Like you said, you can go to whatever match you really want to read first yeah. and then go out of order versus with Pete or with an autobiography, you want that kind of beginning, middle and end type of piece. So I think you both hit on that and, and made that really, really clear. You guys both did amazing jobs on your projects. Well, one, thing I one thing I would say, it's interesting from what Steve had to say is, is that in a way the challenge with both Pete and I would imagine, and with Roger for sure, was that there is just so much material, um, so much to marshal. The Pete Rogers done thousands of interviews in multiple languages. I've done over 20 with them over the years, which is really the basis of the book. And, um, and so many matches and, and so many people talking about Roger over the years. So that was also a huge challenge was just to marshal the information, figure out he didn't want it to become, I wanted his voice to be a big part of it. And that was important to me because I had that access and I had those conversations. So I wanted to be able to bring that out. But if it just became that, I think it would have lost. You needed more interpretation and you needed to really have a, have a very discerning eye. Maybe my eye wasn't discerning enough at times, but to be able to, to leave a lot, a lot on the cutting room floor and, and, and making those cuts and making those decisions took up a lot of time and a lot of headspace. Yeah. Well, uh, and tough decisions. Go ahead, Steve. Just quick interjection. His eye was very discerning as someone who read the book very carefully. And I think that's what made the Federer books so, so compelling for the readers was that, that there was some really, excellent interpretation it's and it went beyond chris's interviews with roger it went to his own view of the game and of the man himself and i think that was that was a crucial part of the book the other crucial part was steve flink catching 20 uh, errors in his read of my book which was very helpful <laughs> chris every time i send him an email I, I i get nervous before i hit the send button chris you know i i, I can't thank him enough i just i'm gonna keep doing it it was it was great and i, I said thank you steve just in time. Chris, you, you hit on something that I'm so glad you did. And you, you haven't even seen the, the outline where I want to go, but you said, you know, he does interviews. Roger does interviews in five different languages. I want to talk a little bit about Roger always being on both on the court and off the court. And, I, and the amount of energy that is needed for all of his obligations is, is completely mind boggling to me. And I'm talking off the court, you know, a lot of the general public just sees what he does. He works really hard on, you know, during match time, but my gosh, after matches, he does press and like you said, five different languages. He's got all these public appearances promoting the events. I saw it firsthand on Labor Cup a few years back when it was in Chicago. The amount of energy that is needed and he's always on, um, you know, it, it's something that I think few people have that ability to do. And it takes so much energy and we're not even talking about success on the court. Can you talk a little bit about that in all your interactions with Roger? Well, one, one thing comes to mind uh, when you talk about all that, and that was um, one of our last real lengthy interviews that we did was in 2019. It was in Switzerland. We went to lunch after a clay court practice session up in the, up in the Alps near his house uh, in Linzerheide. And we were talking about this very topic. I mean, how did, he, how did he find a way to juggle it all? And how did he, what was sort of the secret to his longevity and his, his seeming delight in longevity? He just seemed like he had the, 
the very bearable lightness of being, if you will, for a long time. Um, and I feel like uh, one thing he kept doing was this. He would hold up his fist in the interview and talk about the clenched fist and how important it was to do this. You had to clench, but then you had to unclench. And he felt like many players over time had not done a good job of, of finding enough time to do that. And what he meant by that was you're on, you're on the circuit, you're fully committed, but you got to find a way to break away from the competitive training match uh, rhythm and breathe and relax and change your chip, if you will. And I think he applies that. I think it's learned behavior. I think it took him a long time to get there, but I think he really did get there. And I think that's been the key for him with his personality type and with his multiple commitments and his big ambitions. I mean, he seems like a great, great guy. And he is, I think, and he's somebody who uh, has big expectations of himself. He's had to learn how to manage, but I, and I think he can seem extremely cool when you're just face to face with him and sort of relaxed and in repose and, like a guy you could have a beer with and you can, but there's a lot of thought that goes into creating that mood and that ability with him. It's, it's very intentional. And I, I think this, the fist and all that, whether he and his wife, Mirka came to that conclusion together, whether he came to it himself, I don't know, but it, it's been a huge part of, of the process. And I think his compartmentalization, which he plans for, and which is very important to him, he knows he's got an internal thermometer barometer inside that tells him when he needs that, that relaxation time and he needs to break away. Uh, and I think it's allowed him to really give his utmost in all these different domains of the tennis requires. It's incredible. It really is um, how much he has to give, not just being on the court, trying to win matches and being the very best, arguably the greatest of all time. Um, I, I want to talk next about, with, with your interaction with just not Roger, but with also Rafa and Novak, you know, there's the public view that there's so much love towards Roger and Rafa. And then there's maybe hatred towards Novak, or there's so much love to Novak and there's hatred toward Roger and Rafa. I think that's changing gladly. Cause I mean, these three guys all have, you know, they're all have their, their great strengths. Um, we saw it change in New York. Uh, I think it probably took a little bit too long to, to get to New York to have that happen with Novak. But um, talk about what, what your view is and what your sense is while you have these, so much love to the Roger and Rafa group and versus the contrast of, oh, no, not Novak. And, and again, I'm glad that seems to be changing over time here. Yeah, I'd love to hear what Steve has to say after I finish about sort of Connors, McEnroe, Borg, Lendl in that period, because I think there are some parallels that I could see, but he lived it more than I did. My, my sense of, of it all is it, there's partly a timing issue involved, and that is that you know, basically, uh, Novak broke up the lives of the party in some ways and came, came along with also a narrative structure that everybody was pretty comfortable with, was well established with um, Rafa and Roger going at each other with stylistic differences and, and a little bit of an age gap and, um, and also a very uh, refreshingly collegial vibe, I think, in a lot of ways. Of course, there was some edge to their rivalry. I mean, Roger complaining about uh, Tony Nadal's coaching that was real. And I know Roger did not love having his, uh, his moment of dominance interrupted by, uh, by Rafa's arrival. And it happened pretty quickly, faster than people remember, I think in a lot of ways, but they came to a, a pretty uh, nice Entente Cordiale relatively quickly. And I think there was a lot of appreciation for that vibe and Novak uh, emerged basically in 2007, 2008. Huh? So a long time ago yeah. in this, in this uh, dynamic. And that was sort of a, peak interest at that stage in, in, in Roger and Rafa. Uh, 
there was a huge amount of interest in that. So Novak was kind of almost inconvenient in terms of how that all played out. And I think those tribes of support were pretty well established and Novak uh, kind of just disrupted it all. So, that, and I think he came in also with a, I found it refreshing as a journalist, his sort of comedic talents and his, um, his own linguistic set of ta talents that he had. And he's got a very strong personality, Novak. And his game is also a bit of a contrast to Rodgers and Rafa's too, the way he plays the game. So I think all that was, was kind of cool to see. But again, I think he was perceived as somebody who was a little disrespectful compared to the vibe that was in place at that time. And he was sort of, uh, I think, openly ambitious in a way that Roger and Rafa had sort of played down by Roger sort of playing it cool and being smooth. And Rafa always singing Roger's praises almost to a, to a, uh, I think over, overdoing it at times. So I think in some ways Novak came out, in a way was being very real, but I think that sort of that dynamic also created an impression. And one thing I've learned over the years in tennis is it's, it's, it's hard once you create a certain vibe and a certain impression to shake it, yeah. not easy to do because people get a real deeply embedded sort of view of who you are and to change that, that momentum can take a lot. And it can be done for sure. You look at Navratilova and Steve can speak to this or, or people like, um, you know, I, yeah, I, I'd, I'd say Andre, especially is a great example, legacy of that, uh, how things can change over time, but it takes time. And I think, you know, all along uh, Novak and, and uh, Roger and Rafa have had by historical standards, I think a very collegial and yeah. nice environment. You compare it to some of the rivalries of the past, you know, Visa's downright sweet. <laughs> But I think compared to what Roger and Rafa had established, it was a change. And I, and I just think there's been a lack of forgiveness and acceptance still in a lot of people's parts of, of, his, of his role. And, and frankly, he's, uh, he's taken over the last decade in a lot of ways. Steve, I'll, I'll let you add to that. That's great insight. Thanks, Chris. It was great insight. No, first, Chris brought up the, the, uh, the Connors, McEnroe, Lendl, and Borg here. And of course, Borg was out of the picture first. But when, what struck me when when Chris brought that up is in that era, David, the, the uh, Connors and McEnroe were sort of the outlaws and they were, they were the bad boys of tennis and they, they kind of detested each other. But interestingly enough, they, they ganged up in a sense on Lendl. Here was this earnest craftsman who just went out there and did his job, caused no trouble, not colorful, but not popular, especially with the American public and very dour and they, they, they proceeded to really sort of ambush him verbally in a way at times that I thought was a bit unfair. There's where I see a parallel. Novak's a totally different personality, Chris, obviously from, from Yvonne Lendl. But the, the similarity to me is that ne both Lendl and Jokic were worthy of more admiration. And the other thing that strikes me is about Chris bringing up Agassi is the public perception of Agassi did change radically over the years from the, this swashbuckling young kid who came along with the long hair and the colorful outfits to what he became uh, in, in the 90s when he sort of rearranged his priorities. So I, I find all those things interesting, but I, I really am largely in accord with Chris about what in his analysis of the, of the big three now and, and how that has all played out. And I, I, I just wonder, David, will the next step be if Djokovic does pass them and breaks the tie and goes on and, and establishes himself in the eyes of many as the greatest player of all time, whether that pu the public perception may find, I mean, yes, it was a, a turning point emotionally for what happened with the crowd at the U S open, but will we see more of that down the road? I mean, Chris, it was interesting to watch Djokovic playing and watching him in the Davis cup. And he's being interviewed after 
tell me if I'm pronouncing this right, after they played Kazakhstan. Am I, have I got that right? So as far played- as I know, I'm, I'm, my, my Kazakh needs work. But yeah, okay, I got okay, you. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to call it Kazakhstan. But he's done the interview, David. They've been, they do the courtside interview. The, the, the interviewers have their masks on and they're standing there in the very formal setting, obviously, and quick. And uh, he and his teammate did their brief interviews and it, it had totally broken up. And they were starting to leave the court and Djokovic stopped them from leaving, got them to come back. And he said, I just want to say that I want to congratulate Kazakhstan on reaching the quarterfinals and also on your fans. You have terrific fans or something to that effect. And I thought, I wish people would talk more about that side of him because yes, he'll get criticized for smashing the rackets, but in, in, in essence, he's real to me, he's really a superior sportsman. And that moment, of bringing up Kazakhstan, going out of his way to laud their fans and acknowledge their players, I thought was was a very prevalent side of him. Well yeah, said. I, I honestly can't think. I mean, Steve, I can't think of a time when he was a a poor loser. I can't. I oh. can't. I really can't. I, I mean, yeah. there may be maybe occasions I'm missing. I know there's been times during matches I didn't think he was doing a great job of handling the the flow right. of the match. Sometimes in his his breaks, I agree. Sometimes been ill timed. I know there's. Uh, I'm sure he has a good defense for that, but there's been quite a lot, especially earlier in his career when he would leave the court or break up the rhythm of the match. But as far as when the, when the deal is done, uh, he's shown a lot of uh, magnanimous behavior and, and a lot of eloquent words over the years. I would agree. Yeah. Class of his own when it comes to that. It's not that Roger and Rafa are bad losers, but Novak is just extraordinary. And I mean, the moment I remember most, Chris, I, we, I don't know if you were at the 2015 French Open. But he loses to Stan Wawrinka in the final after beating Rafa in the quarters. Everybody thought it was going to be Novak's title. And he hadn't won the tournament yet. He won his first title the next year. And the, he went so far out of his way and genuinely to hug Stan, to talk to Stan at the net, to greet him a few more times before the presentation. I, I just thought it was remarkable because he was obviously hurting deeply. He thought he might finally have his breakthrough there and he loses to Stan. But he got completely outside of himself and put him in, put himself in Stan's shoes. And it was, it, it was remarkable sportsmanship. Yeah, I was there. And there's actually a footage of a uh, film that was shot that year, documentary film by the French tennis federation, which you probably have seen. Um, it was basically a analysis of the whole tournament. And there's a footage of Novak just sitting there staring into space in his chair after that defeat. Um, and you can, you can just see what it meant to lose that match and, and what you're describing the ability to kind of get outside himself and, and reach out to his, to the, one, the man who won the match. And he's done that before. He could even see it in uh, the match in, um, in Turin when he lost, uh, when he lost there, uh, he was able yeah. to, uh, to reach out and overcome the disappointment and, and do what needed to be done. Yeah, uh, no, go ahead, Steve. David, just a brief point that Chris in his book do, does a nice job of uh, sort of giving you a true sense of Roger and his many great qualities and a few of the, the minor flaws. And one of the things you did bring out, Chris, that I liked that you did because I thought it was an important moment was the low point for Roger being the 2011 U.S. Open was the second year in a row that that no, that he'd had match points, two match points in each case against Novak. And they and both matches got away. Great comebacks from Novak, just as the 29, similar to 2019 Wimbledon when Djokovic saved two more match points and won that final. But Roger came in maybe perhaps a, a little a little too soon who's to say and he and he really was not gracious in that press conference and talked about how 
he described one of the match points as remind uh, of Novak when he hit that that forehand. black forehand return winner cross court, you know, that was just stunning. As it reminded him of his days in the juniors when guys would slap balls around and somehow they 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 go in. So there was a certain a certain bitter edge to him that day. And I was glad you brought that out just because there is a sense sometimes among fans, he's so revered and deservedly so that that he walks on water and he can do no wrong. And I think it was important that that side of him be brought out because certainly you, you were more than fair at, at talking about his, his gracious and elegant qualities. But that, that I, I thought that was important that you mentioned that. T- tell me about your thoughts in bringing that into the book. Yeah, I appreciate that, Steve. I mean, yeah, he's no saints. Uh, none of us are. And it's important when you write a book of this length and this depth that you, you try to show the whole person and, and don't, don't try to create, uh, do any myth-making involved with a with kind of a project. You know that from your Pete book as well. So I felt like I've been around Roger in a public context quite a long time. I've been really, truly impressed by the way he's conducted himself in general. Um, he's had a lot of opportunities to screw up. <laughs> <laughs> he really has 20 yeah. years of, of, uh, of exposure to all people like us and to uh, all these different settings and different cultural uh, expectations. And he's really navigated it very graciously. But there have there have been moments when the when the competitive uh, nature comes out. And I think also that that little boy who had a hard time accepting defeat um, and understanding it and and really being able to find a way to cope with it emotionally. It's rare, but it does still come out on, on occasions still uh, and it has over his, uh, his his later career. And I think um, it just shows you, too, as a book, I hope, displays how far he's come in a lot of ways, too, that he's had to try to conquer these things. In a lot of ways, the Roger Federer that we see on the court is playing against type in a lot of ways for him. He's He is a much more volcanic by nature than he shows to people. And I think you that's never know it. Act- You'd never know. Yeah, it, it's been a real act of will. But I think at times like that and they're rare. I think, and I think when he feels like maybe an injustice has been done and maybe his code of the way tennis should be played was broken that day, by the way, Novak won those points. He hadn't really worked for them the way that Novak usually works for points. It wasn't the normal dynamic. And he reacted in a, in a wounded way because I think Novak, I think the best players know who makes them uncomfortable. They know it. They never forget it. They try to hide it and don't tell you, but they, they know. And Novak from an early stage, just like Rafa, made Roger uncomfortable on the court. Incredible insight by both of you guys. I appreciate it. I think it goes to saying, even though we don't think people, the, the big three, as great as they are, are human. They are, in fact, human, and they have their strengths, and they also have uh, some, some flaws as well. So thank you for that. I want to now ask the million-dollar question, because you said, as far as timing of the book, you felt it was right. It was after the 2019 we, uh, season when you got so close and then when we were in final. Um, you know, the million dollar question is, is what's next? How is this going to end for Roger? And I don't even know if Roger knows right now, right? As the date of this recording, um, we do know at the date of this recording that he's going to be surprised if he'll even be ready by Wimbledon in 2022 in your conversations with him. Um, any, any hint on where this goes? Do you think he'll try to complete 2022? Do you think 2023 is out of reach for him? Um, and, and I'll, and I'll, I guess I'll finish with, I think we all, appreciate his love for the sport and he will still remain involved in the sport. We know labor cup. I mean, that's his baby. He's going to be involved in that some way, shape or form, but you don't see him exiting the sport and we're not hearing from him once he decides to retire. Right. Yeah. I haven't talked to him 
in depth for a while now. So my insight into where he's at right now would be limited to what, what I think and what I, what I was, my supposition of based on past experiences and what I can see. Um, I just don't, I think Roger is by nature, an optimistic person who really thrives on positive energy. I don't think he likes to uh, get bogged down in negative thoughts. And for whatever reason, I am frankly a little bit surprised. Uh, he seems like he really matters to him to try to come back and have a better, a better go of it than he had this last, uh, this last run in, in 2021, where he was clearly hampered by the knee and the six love loss of the set to her catch at Wimbledon in the quarters, not the way I'm sure he envisioned playing his last Wimbledon match or possibly even his last match. That's not the, what he wants to go out with. And I think he's using the rehabilitation process on this latest knee surgery, which I think is, is much more significant um, as motivation. And he knows that he wants to have an active life with his four kids, especially his two young sons who are, you know, still uh, quite young now and be able to do all the things he's been wanting to do for a while, which is ski with his family and his friends and play pickup soccer and do all those things. So I know he's using this rehabilitation process. He wants to be extra motivated and do it right. So he has a, a future that he can look forward to in terms of physicality and all that. But I personally think it's going to be extremely difficult for him to get the kind of big bang result to finish that he may be looking for. And he, he said in his most recent press conference, no, most recent interview with Swiss, uh, a Swiss journalist that uh, he was doing this for the fans in a lot of ways. I don't think he should be doing it for the fans at this point. I think he's given the fans everything that they need. They have gotten their full dose of great Roger across the scope. And so they'd be delighted to have him come back and play some more and especially win some more. But I think he needs to be doing this for himself. If he feels like he needs a satisfaction himself deep inside himself to play better tennis, pain-free tennis, perhaps some more in his career to get what he needs more power to him. I mean, he's earned whatever finish he wants to go for, but I don't think he's going to get that big bang, hold up the trophy, you know, beat, beat the young lions one after the next and walk off with the Wimbledon in his rearview mirror. I just don't see it happening at 40, 41 years old, but it sure seems like he wants to come back and play some more and knowing him and the energy he can put into things and that will that's inside of him and that positive energy, I wouldn't put it past him, but I don't see uh, the Hollywood walk-off moment. <laughs> Steve, I, I think you're in agreement with him, but I'll let you, you know, I'll give you the opportunity to add to that. No, there's not much that is, a, <clears throat> it's very good analysis and, and perspective. I would say that, you know, we, we, we've talked about it, David and I, a few times, Chris, and I just feel like if he gets, if he runs into the same syndrome, Roger, as he did in 2021, and he's having to stop and start again, I just can't imagine that is going to be worth it to him at that point, uh, all, all in the quest to end it more on his own terms to, to have to have to be so disrupted again. I think the only way it works is if he makes that comeback in the summer and he's able to play continuously through the end of the year and he's not in a lot of pain and he's getting reasonably good results. And then maybe he does play on into 2023, but it's such a, such a tall task. It would, He's already he's going to be 41 by the time that comeback happens, apparently, according to his own the way he looks at the scenario. And that, that's asking a lot of himself. I totally do agree with Chris that it should be more about what Federer wants for himself, yeah. what his own desires are. And the fans will be perfectly understanding. They've been more than rewarded across the years by Roger Federer. Yeah, 100 percent agree with both of you. Chris, you want to add? Well, the thing I would say, too, is I think. Uh, through my lens, people might say Roger can't let go. 
uh, he's coming back because he just can't let go and he can't accept that the sport would move on without him. I don't buy that. I don't, I don't buy, I don't, buy but that. I, but, I, but I have heard that. And it's sort of a sign of hanging on to that last you know, thread of relevance in the game. To me, I think it's just a sign of, of how much he truly enjoys the process of playing and also how much he just enjoys the whole environment of tennis because of that clenched, unclenched fist philosophy that he's had and the ability he's had to really kind of uh, solve the riddle of how to thrive and survive in the shark tank of competitive tennis. He really has. And I think he really enjoys the way it's set up for him and it's a true, true pleasure. And I think he really will miss it. Um, I think he'll, he'll, he'll move on, but I think he'll miss it. So I think part of this, what we're seeing this desire to keep going beyond what might seem logical is also coming from very positive emotions too. Yeah. I, the only thing I would add, just my own personal opinion, people are saying, Oh, he doesn't want to go out. Let's say he never plays uh, professionally again. And let's hope I'm wrong on this, but let's say he doesn't. Everyone's like, Oh, he's not going to want to leave his last moment. Six Oh at Wimbledon against her uh, his body of work. There's so many memorable moments. I don't think uh, over time that will go away. And I don't think people will harp on that and be like, Oh my God, his last moment ever on a court was a six love third. So I just don't personally, in my opinion, I think, Time will le- let that go, and I don't think that will be the last impression of Roger Federer at all. Um, I don't know if you guys agree or disagree to that. No, that's a good point, but I just want to add one thing to what Chris was talking about. I think that that joy that he's describing in Federer as a performer, the actual act of going out and hitting tennis balls and playing to his heart's content, I, I think he's in, I think it's almost singular. I don't, I've never seen anything quite like it, Chris, in terms, I think with all the other great champions, they all love the sport to be sure. And they love to compete and they love to win. But with him, it it seems to go beyond that. And and maybe that is why he feels like he's got to give it, squeeze it to the very, very end here and, and, and be satisfied on his terms. But I, I have not seen that in any male or female champion to the degree that he's exhibited. And Steve, yeah. to add to your thoughts, he, he likes traveling with his family. It does. It's not a hindrance. It doesn't bother him. He enjoys doing all that. So 100%. Oh, that's the other point Chris is making. Absolutely. It's the lifestyle itself too. It's, it's the whole package and he's embraced it more comprehensive, comprehensively than anybody else I've seen. Yeah. But maybe guys too, you know, I mean, he, maybe he's tennis is Springsteen in a way you think about it. Um, He's gotten all that energy from the crowd everywhere he goes. Pretty much, he hasn't played too much in Serbia. I'm not sure where he get there, but um, <laughs> but, every, but every, everywhere else, I mean, it's it, it's it's kind of like the beloved rock star making his journey around the world and, and playing his greatest hits for people. And I don't think he'd be happy with that in terms of the results all went south. But the results have been pretty good. Uh, an awful lot of good results into a late stage of his career. And he's got nothing but positive feedback from the crowds he's played in front of. So there's, there is sort of a musical sort of musical quality to his tennis anyway. And I think um, that's not a bad analogy in my mind, that sense that, you know, that sense of, of the performer beyond tennis who communes with those crowds like that. I'm not sure if there's an equivalent to that, Steve, over that long a period of time in tennis. I don't, I don't think so. And I also don't think there's an equivalent to the way the crowds have embraced him from beginning to end of his career. Once I think back to the first Wimbledon in 03 and from that point forward, I mean, he was on the map and it didn't seem to matter whether it was the dominant phase from 04 to 07 or the difficult stretch of say 2010 and 11, when he, you know, after he won the Australian in 2010, it was a long dry spell up to Wimbledon 2012. I think of all these stages of his career 
the reemergence in 2017 and beating Rafa in the Australian Open final after the first knee surgery, all of these stages, didn't matter where he was in his career, he was beloved. And everywhere he went, Chris, everywhere. So you're right. Maybe Serbia would be the lone exception. But otherwise, uh, I, I, that reverence was there. And it, it must have been, I, I'm sure it spoiled him in some ways. I don't think he took it for granted, but I think it's the only thing he knows. I mean, this, this is how it's been all along. And it's remarkable. It really is. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book, to be honest with you, was to try to understand even though it was clear what was going on, I kind of wanted to really understand for myself why, how, because I can't remember an equivalent of people not having a dip over, a, basically you're talking about an 18 year period here now from 2003. And really he got on the map in 01 when he beat Pete. Right. Right. What about Chrissy? I know Steve has, has so much history with Chrissy. Chrissy was revered pretty well. Yes. But when Chrissy and I used to talk to her a lot about it in the seventies, when she was dominating, unlike Roger, the crowds often, even in the U.S., were rooting for her opponents, and it really stung. She wouldn't talk oh. about on the record, but off the record, she was really uh, disturbed by it because she felt like she was conducting herself well and she didn't understand it. And all she was trying to do was go out and win. And those crowds were, were pretty tough at times during her during this period of, say, 74 to 78, in the middle of all that when she was number one in the world. And then it, it did change later when Martina surpassed her and then the rivalry went back and forth. But I, I think uh, she, that never, I never sensed that with Roger in, in the dominant phase. They, they, they couldn't, he couldn't win enough for those fans. And, and that was everywhere he appeared all over the globe. Interesting. Um, I know we're talking uh, you know, mostly about Roger here, obviously because of Chris and the, the great book that's out now. Um, again, it's, it's a new book called The Master, The Long Run, Beautiful Game of Roger Federer, out in several, several languages. Um, I want to switch topics uh, before we end, just because both of you two are so passionate on it. And I think a lot of tennis fans are passionate on it. It's starting to get lost in the shuffle. There's a lot of confusion of format, where to watch it. I want to kind of pass the baton over to both of you. Um, we're recording now at the end of the, the the tennis season and the end of the calendar year of 2021 Davis cup um, it was so many good memories and you guys, I mean, there's, we could go for hours to talk about all the amazing matches and moments there were in Davis cup history. It's losing some of its luster. I think we all agree with that. And that's sad. Um, I want both of you guys have, have shared thoughts, whether it's been through me, whether it's been through social media, um, I want to talk and, and we'll start with Chris and then we'll, we'll, we'll throw it to Steve. What is your take on Davis cup and where do you think, do you think we can get it back up to maybe not where it was at its peak, but um, back to, to where it appropriately should be uh, within the history of the sport? Yes. Yeah, it's, a, it's a good timely question. I mean, I, and my, my emotions on hearing it are kind of a mixture of, of sadness and some guilt because I feel like I really lobbied for, for change with my column over time because I felt like in the U S it was just losing momentum and it, it needed to, it needed something to refresh it. But let me just say this. Uh, I'm in France right now. It's 2021. And there's been a series of, uh, of great retrospectives over here uh, back to 1991 and the Davis cup final when France defeated the U S um, with Yannick Noah as captain Henri Leconte and Guy Forget played the tennis of their lives to beat a, Pete Sampras, Andre Agassi team with a very good doubles team of Flack and Seguso in a wild arena in Lyon 
which I'll never forget. I was a pretty young journalist. I covered that. And I can still feel uh, the ringing in my ears and I can still get the cigarette smoke that was on top of the arena in my nostrils from being in that place. It was unforgettable. It's a top five experience for me in my career as an event that I covered. And frankly, a lot of those early Davis Cups that I saw in the 1990s are right up there for me in terms of events that I saw in the course of my career. And, I, and even in the 2000s, I went to Argentina when Spain upset Argentina and Del Potro and Albandian and, and Mar del Plata. Some fabulous moments. So you know what Davis Cup can be yeah. uh, in person, in terms of the emotions. Frankly, it's, it's unrivaled in terms of what it's been able to create over time. And you go back even further when it was one of the pillars of the game. And Steve goes back to those days. I mean, it, it really was something that shouldn't have needed saving. But yet, yet over time, I think um, the way the game was, was governed, the lack of agreement among the powers in the game beyond the International Tennis Federation, which owns the Davis Cup, created a, a loss of momentum. And ultimately, the, uh, the way the schedule was constructed, looking at the times of Connors and Borg in particular, uh, the players just stopped committing to it regularly once they got to a certain level. There were some guys who were exceptions, John McEnroe, you could call Novak Djokovic and Nadal exceptions in today's game. But really, um, this amazing period in men's tennis of the last 20 years, when you've had these fantastic historic rivalries, they haven't happened in Davis Cup. They just haven't. And it's uh, ultimately, that's why I was calling for change. But where we are now with this hybrid model that's going on um, and finals in Madrid, I think takes it too far. And I think they should have tinkered instead of blowing it all up. It needs money. It needs funding. If it was an event that was run by the sport as a whole, it would be run very differently. I understand the ITF situation where they need the money and the revenue. It runs their entire organization in a lot of ways, but I do feel there's a risk of them losing, losing all of it because of the way it's going right now. And I, it makes me very sad and I do feel guilty because I did ask for change, but not this much change. Steve, I'll let you add. I, I know this is a passionate topic of yours. Having felt much the way Chris did, I don't want him to feel guilty because I think his heart was in the right place. And I think there should have been a way for it to carry this off, as Chris described. There could, there could have been a different approach by the ITF. What, what disturbs me, what saddens me is, yes, the ATP Cup, it's, it, they now have it, they slot it in at the beginning of the year before the Australian Open and players have a lot of spirit there. And then the other event that came along that I think has in some ways been a, I have very mixed feelings about it is the labor cup because the players love it. But to me, it's really a large scale exhibition, you know, team world versus team Europe in, in, a, in shorter matches and the scoring system. And it's, it's not the same thing. And, but I, my, what I'm getting at is the public confusion over all this. They see three team events. Now the Davis cup has gotten lost in the shuffle and no matter what, they did if they'd stuck with the old schedule and home and away ties and spread it out throughout the year or putting in one time frame as we've done as we did this year, they still are, are getting short shrift. And that, that bothers me because to me, Davis Cup is the towering team event. And I go back with it even further than Chris. I'll never forget being in Bucharest in 1972, lucky enough to make that trip, living with my father in London at the time and going with the British press over there and watching Stan Smith almost single handedly. Uh, win the Davis Cup for the U.S. over Nastassi and Tyriak and Smith winning two singles matches and a doubles. And it was just, it was astonishing. But I, I, I feel like even with the, the, what the criticisms that Chris is offering, which are totally valid, that in some ways Davis Cup has been victimized. 
That's yeah, that's well said. I mean, I, I, again, how it was, I mean, you basically knew at least from a fan perspective, um, you knew it was four times a year. If you went through the finals, you knew when those dates were, you knew ESPN would cover it for the U S I mean, there was some consistency, consistency there. And now there's just so much confusion. Uh, I'm, I'm with you and I, and I'm a huge proponent proponent of labor cup. I, I love labor cup. Um, but I think Davis cup still has its, its place and, and hopefully uh, moving forward, it can get back to, you know, somewhere that, that that's a good fit for both the players and the fans. Cause I think it's so good for the sport with that um, Chris and Steve, I mean, for me, me being here with two phenomenal writers, two phenomenal people uh, who've covered the sport of tennis. Thank you so much for allowing me to be part of this conversation to our listeners uh, it's going to be, it's, it's holiday season right now. So two great books, two must-haves, Steve's latest book, Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited, and, and Chris's book, The Master, The Long Run, and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer. You, you, get them, because uh, you, you're going to love them. I promise you that. And they're written by two amazing writers and two amazing individuals. Both of you guys, happy holidays, um, and, and wish you both much luck, and uh, professionally and personally in, in 2022. Yes, you too, David. Thank you very much. Thanks. Very very touched by that. Thanks so much for that and happy holidays to you.